You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, tonight we come to verse 10 and we will read down to verse 14. Matthew chapter 18. And we read beginning at verse 10. Our Lord said this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you have a New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible, You'll see verse 11, which is not included in the English Standard Version. I'll talk about that more later. But verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it truly... I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have made us a people of the truth. You have brought us into the knowledge of the truth and you've caused us to love the truth, to live by the truth, fed by the truth, sustained by the truth, and a people who desire to walk in the truth. Thank you, Lord, for this. This is your doing in our hearts and in our lives. It is your will that we be sanctified in the truth, and you've told us your word is truth. And so, Lord, let this time of preaching tonight contribute to the ongoing growth of your church. Even as we considered this morning, we realize that sin is a serious issue and every life sitting before me right now, we live in a world where we are under constant assault and where temptations abound all around. We are grateful that we are safe in your hand, that the evil one does not touch us, that you've not just laid hold of us, but you've taken hold of us in a way that we will arrive safely at the end for which you have ordained our salvation. And yet this is one of the means that you've ordained for our continuance and our perseverance. And we thank you then, Lord, that we get to gather together and sing your praises and pray together and encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching and to be fed with the pure milk of your word. Lord, would you bless tonight. Help me to declare the truths that you've revealed and help us to receive them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. When we started Matthew chapter 18, we observed that this is a chapter that focuses on the children of God. How does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, you must become like a child. How does God regard his children? And how should those children regard each other, as we saw this morning, in our union with Christ? How do we live as a child of God on this side of eternity? That's what all of these verses instruct us about. We said that the chapter can be divided in the following way, verses 1 through 4, 
the kingdom belongs to God's children. Verses 5 through 9, the king identifies with God's children. Verses 10 through 14, the children of God are to be cared for. Verses 15 through 20, the children of God are to be corrected. In verses 21 through 35, the children of God are to be forgiven. And so tonight, having considered how one enters the kingdom of heaven and having considered how our Savior identifies Himself with us, we saw that this morning, we come now to what flows out of that knowledge, and that is how the children of God are to be cared for, verses 10 through 14. A part of the instruction we receive tonight is in the form of a parable. In verses 12 through 14, our Lord talks about a shepherd who has one of a hundred sheep go astray and how he goes to find that sheep and how he rejoices over the rescue of that sheep. And if we wonder about the connection between the parable and the preceding verses, that which we looked at this morning, I think it's clear that what our Lord is teaching us here is our concern about stumbling blocks needs to match our Father's concern about the ultimate outcome for His people. If it is the Father's will that not one of these little ones should perish, then when we think about one another and our influence on each other, our concerns need to match that of our shepherds. We need to be thinking about one another's preservation, perseverance, blessing, strength, continuance. Our Lord has saved us to take us all the way home, and what we ought to care about is making a contribution to that end in each other's lives. I said it in my prayer a moment ago, we're exhorted in the book of Hebrews that when we come together, we exhort each other all the more as we see the day approaching. So we're living our lives with the end in view. And we're wanting to influence each other with the end that is in view. I would remind you again that this teaching is for disciples. These are warnings that register with genuine children of God. If you're a child of God, you're not just concerned about yourself, you're concerned about your brethren. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. It's one thing to say, I love the people of God, but the evidence that you love the people of God is that you're loving God in an obedient fashion. And so you take these sorts of commands and warnings into your heart and you, you live in the light of them. This is the evidence that you really are a child of God. When God gives you commands regarding fellow children, when God gives you commands regarding your spiritual family, those commands register with you. So, as we're hearing our Lord talk about His love for His people, not only are we blessed as a child of God to reflect on our Lord's love for us, but we're tested as a child of God, a professing child of God. Do I really share my Savior's love for His people? Do I love my brothers and sisters in a way that reflects our shepherd's care for us? If God is precious to me, if my Savior is precious to me, 
then you, child of God, must be precious to me. This is one of the evidences that we really are who we claim to be. Two main points tonight. I'll just mention them as we look at them. First of all, we see the care for God's children demonstrated by the assignments of the Father. The care for God's children demonstrated by the assignments of the Father. This is verse 10. Look at it there with me again. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Our Lord begins in verse 10 with a clear directive. It's a command, and it's in a negative form. It has to do with something forbidden. We are commanded not to despise one of these little ones. And again, in context, we understand he's talking about his disciples. He's talking about someone who has believed in him. I want you to note that he's talking about any believer, every believer, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is something we can't be selective about. This is something that we're to apply universally. And what attitude does Jesus forbid? He forbids that we would look down on a fellow child of God. Katafraneo is the word. It means to look down on someone with contempt or aversion with the implication that one considers the object of little value. You despise them, you scorn them, you treat them with contempt. It is a sin, it is a great sin to treat a child of God as if they're of very little value, to treat them as though they are unimportant, to treat them in a way that is dismissive of them. Or, if we were to put it positively, we're commanded to see each child of God as having great importance, great worth. And we need to let that universal application sink in for a moment. I mean, this is true with the most common Christian. This is most of us, right? The people who have very little influence, no fame, no influence in the world, in some cases, minimal education, in some cases, minimal means, that person we are to see as having great value, great worth, because they belong to Jesus. They belong to us. They're our brother or sister. This is to be applied when it comes to the quirkiest Christian. Now, we always define quirky as not us, right? It's someone else who is quirky. But just the way that God has wired us by virtue of personality and all the rest, we're going to meet some people that they're very much like us, and we're going to meet some people in the family of God who are very unlike us. So the people that you think of that are most unlike you, you are to consider those people as having great value, great worth. You must never look down on them. You must never be dismissive of them. You must never treat them with contempt or scorn. That's what our Lord is saying. Even the quirkiest Christian, or we could say the most immature Christian, how can they think like they think? How can they behave like they behave? 
How immature must you be to think like that or behave yourself like that? Well, even that person. If they're a fellow child of God, we think of them as having great worth, great value. We get beyond the immaturity and we see the identity. This is true with struggling Christians. We could say disobedient Christians. When we see a brother or sister in their worst form, in their greatest struggles, which in fact is a sort of believer, I think, that our Lord envisions in verses 12 through 14. I mean, someone who's straying, someone who's wandering. Are we dismissive of them? Oh, it's just one person. It's just one family. Who really cares? I mean, they're making their own choices. Let them live in what they choose. Is that our attitude or do we see their value, their worth? And so this is the command. We must not ever think in a lowly way about a fellow child of God. We must not despise even one of these little ones. By the way, how are we guilty of this? You can be guilty of this and never say a word about it, just the way you think about someone. What are your thoughts toward a fellow brother or sister in Christ? We can be guilty of this by not really caring for each other. Hard-hearted, calloused, unfeeling about a fellow disciple. We can certainly be guilty of this by how we speak to someone or speak about someone. This morning we talked about how important it is that we apply these truths down to the level even of our homes, our marriage, our family. How do you speak to one another at home? We can be guilty of this by disregarding each other. Well, our Lord doesn't just give us a command. He gives us a motivation. Why should this command matter to us? See that you do not despise one of these little ones for... Because I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What is that talking about? Well, I believe what our Lord is describing are the holy angels continually fixed on our Father in heaven and the assignments He gives to them regarding His children. Always beholding His face in the sense of readiness to do whatever He would command them to do on behalf of these people whom He has saved. This is not teaching, by the way, that every one of us has our individual angel. No, rather it's teaching about what God does with His holy angels regarding this class of people. These little ones, these ones who now belong to Him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. On behalf of these people, the angels do the Father's bidding. Hebrews 1.13 says, And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in speaking of the angels, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. What are angels? Ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. 
this is an amazing thing that we can't see, but one day in heaven we will have a better understanding of that on many occasions that we were totally unaware of, there were holy servants unseen to us, but sent by our Father on our behalf to protect, to care for, to strengthen, whatever the case may be. You see examples of this in the New Testament. Let me just give you two. Acts chapter 5, the 17th verse says, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, God has the power to open a prison door without any help. He doesn't need angels to do it. But he made use of an angel to open that prison door on behalf of the apostles. Acts chapter 12 is another example, the first verse. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. By the way, isn't this instructive? Our God is sovereign over all things. That includes the suffering of His people. That includes the martyrdom of His people. The same one who has the power to take His servants and deliver them from prison in His sovereignty allowed James to be martyred. Could have stopped it. But He didn't. It was James's time to serve the Lord in the way that he did. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer was made for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting Peter's demise, but God delivers him and delivers him by means of an angel. And so our Lord says, You be sure that you don't look down upon these little ones. Don't you know that they are of such worth to your heavenly Father, that angels stand at attention, ready to obey the assignments of the Father that they're given on behalf of these who are to inherit salvation. 
me say it to you this way. If the children of God are served by angels on behalf of our Father in heaven, how does our Father in heaven regard it when we treat those same children, our brothers and sisters, as if they don't have any value? John MacArthur writes, The fact that Almighty God is so concerned about the care of His beloved children that He has hosts of angels in His presence ready to be dispatched to their aid demonstrates clearly how valuable believers are and how unthinkably wicked it is to look with disdain on someone whom God so highly prizes. Close quote. Can we all admit that we have been guilty of thinking thoughts about people, speaking words to or about people, having attitudes toward people, exhibiting behaviors toward people that are wicked when you consider how highly valued those people are by our Father and their Father who is in heaven. This is an area where we need the vision we talked about this morning. This is an area where our Thinking needs to match that of our Savior's. We need to see each other through the lens of our union with Christ. And when we do, we'll understand this is a people cared for by angels. As God our Father gives assignments to those holy servants on behalf of this people. Now there's a question about verse 11. If you have the American Standard or the LSB, you'll see it in brackets. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. It's not in the uh, earliest manuscripts. Almost certainly it was not original. doesn't belong there. But you find it in some manuscripts. And if you wonder how a copyist would include it, remember that you do find it in Luke chapter 19. So the statement is truthful. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. This, this is true. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How would it find its way into, into a manuscript? Well, a well-meaning copyist is probably making a connection between what we've just read and what follows, which is a parable concerning sheep. He's remembering that our Savior is our shepherd, and He came into the world to save His sheep, to seek and save the lost, and He is the one to whom we should apply the parable that we read in verses 12 through 14. So I think that's how it makes its way in, but the ESV is right not to include it. But that brings us to the second thing that we see here, God's care demonstrated for His children based on the assignments of the Father, the holy angels watching over us, caring for us. Then in verses 12 through 14, we see the care for God's children demonstrated by the certainty of God's decrees. The will of God speaks of the care of God for His children. Verse 12, what do you think? I want you to ponder this. I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on this. If any man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, 
Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. The shepherding care of God on behalf of these little ones cares for them by assigning angels to watch for their good, to carry out assignments on their behalf. Now we see he's a shepherd who cares for every one of his sheep. This is what good shepherds do. They care for their sheep. They know their flocks. They know each sheep and they care for each sheep. Notice a good shepherd cares if even one is straying. Right? He doesn't say, well, I have 99 others. Who cares about this one that is gone? No, if he has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, what does a good shepherd do? He leaves the 99 on the mountains and he goes and he searches for that one that is straying, emphasizing yet again the love of God, the love of God's Son for each individual believer. We, we talked about it last week in John 17. Paul is able to write in the book of Galatians of Jesus, he loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, our Lord laid down his life for the sheep, for the flock, but he, at, at, in doing so, he was laying down his life for each and every individual among us who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus loves you. He loves me as a child of God. So that if even one of us strays, our shepherd cares about that. And a good shepherd rejoices when a straying one is rescued. In fact, it would appear he doesn't even care about the other 99. I mean, they're safe. But what does he do? Verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99, which have not gone astray. We, we know about this a little bit, don't we? We, we have something, you know, a group of things that are valuable to us, and we lose one of them. We still have the rest in a drawer, wherever it is. But we're not satisfied by that. We will search and search and search and search until we find the one thing we've lost. And then when we find it, we rejoice over it as if it's the only thing we have. Why? Because every single one of those things is valuable to us. Every single one. And so it is with our shepherd. When one strays and they are rescued, there is great rejoicing. It illustrates the patience that our God has with us. He doesn't stray. We stray. We wander. And yet in the illustration, it's the shepherd who pursues. He goes and finds that sheep. He goes and rescues that sheep, the persistence of our God toward us. We often stray, but He doesn't leave us alone, does He? Perhaps you've felt this. If not, you certainly will before your journey is over, if you live long enough. If it was not for the Lord's faithfulness, I would walk away. If it was not for God's faithfulness, I would be lost. How often have you wandered and the Lord didn't leave you alone? 
working not only in your mind, in your heart, in your conscience, but working through instruments, people, to care about you, talk to you, reason with you, search for you, try to draw you back in the right way. Don't you see your father at work through that? Don't you see your shepherd at work through that? This is not just you know, some sort of random interaction with people. This is God at work through His servants with His Word because He loves you. This is the patience of God and persistence of God with His people. And it speaks of a, of a good shepherd's, shepherd's knowledge of his flock because he, he recognizes that the one is missing. Something's not right. Something's out of order. And so he goes and he searches and he finds that sheep and he brings it home. And there's great rejoicing despite the, the stupidity of the sheep. There's great rejoicing in the rescue. Do you realize, brother, sister, this is simply the continuation of the love that explains our conversion. It's interesting. Here, this parable is used to speak of how God deals with his little ones who now belong to him. But Jesus used the same illustration to speak of our conversion, our salvation in Luke chapter 15. So he told them a parable, this parable, verse 3, Luke 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then, listen now, our Lord applies it. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now he's talking about lost humanity. People who are righteous in their own eyes. Remember Jesus came to, he's a physician who comes for the sick, not for those who think that they're well. And so when someone recognizes that they are a sinner and they repent and turn to Christ, there's great rejoicing over the rescuing, the deliverance of that sheep. Now here's the question in light of our Lord's teaching. Does our attitude toward our brothers and sisters match the shepherd's attitude? Does our attitude match our father's attitude and the angels? I mean, he assigns angels to care for this people. Does our view of each other match that sense of value and worth and importance, or are we dismissive of each other, treating each other as if there is no real worth there, Next point, does our attitude match our shepherd's attitude? When it comes to his care for each and every individual sheep, so that if one strays, he rescues it, and there's great rejoicing over the rescue. He knows the, the condition of the flock and cares about how we're doing. Does our attitude match our shepherd's attitude? Are you concerned that a brother or sister would not stray? Does it matter to you? Dear ones, can I say this to you? You have, you have 12 elders in this church. You have roughly 1,000 people who are 
coming regularly, you know that for us to care for each other, the elders equip the church for the work of the ministry. We all have to care for each other. There's no way for 12 men to keep up with 1,000 people, right? So are you watchful for how your brother or your sister is doing? Do you, do you note it when they're not present? Are you, are you mindful and, and intentional to have conversations to say, how are you doing? How are things going? How can I pray for you? This is one of the reasons why the ABF classes are so important. This is where we can meet in smaller groups and keep up with each other. But this is a work, you see. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, you are. But is your attitude right now reflecting your shepherd's care for the sheep? Do do you care that someone is not straying? And if you're aware of a straying brother or sister, do you care enough to go get them? Do you care enough to involve yourself with them? Sometimes it's a lot of work to involve yourself with someone who's straying, isn't it? Sometimes it's tiring, or sometimes it might even cost you their approval. And so we would rather just look the other way and just let them wander because we don't want to make the investment necessary in order to be a part of their rescue. Are you zealous for their safety? See, this is the other side of the coin, isn't it? I don't want to contribute to their harm. I don't want to be a stumbling block. That's good. But now are you willing to be an instrument for their care, for their, in in some cases, their rescue, for their safety? We've got to be zealous on both sides of that issue, you see. I don't want to be someone who gets in your way, but I do want to be someone who helps you stay in the way. This is how we're to live our lives. What is the perishing that Jesus is talking about? Notice again what he says, verse 14, in this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Could be that what he has in mind is is that this is, this is the way that God uses to preserve His saints. This kind of mutual love and care and concern. Not putting stumbling blocks in one another's way and, and actually pursuing each other for the way. This is how God preserves His children. It could also be that He's using the word perish here in, in, a, in a way that means something less than total destruction. Apollomy is the word, and it's at times used not to speak of total destruction, but temporal damage. So, for example, Romans 14, 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy, Apollo me, the one for whom Christ died. Right? Don't do damage in, in the name of your liberty. Don't do damage to someone for whom Jesus died. Or 1 Corinthians 8.10 says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Apollo me, same word. The brother, the brother for whom Christ died. 
This people for whom Jesus shed his blood. This people on behalf of whom the angels stand ready to serve. This people whom the shepherd watches over in such a way that even if one strays, he leaves the 99 to go get them and rejoices as their rescue. Would you do harm to them for the sake of food? It's astounding, isn't it? The thought that we would think so lowly, so lightly, so dismissively of a people valued so much by God. And so if I love you, if I love God's children, if I really am truthful when I call you my brother or my sister, then not only do I have no desire in my heart to do you harm, I have a desire in my heart to see you do good, to see you do well. And this is what our Lord is teaching us about our love for each other, teaching His disciples. By the way, you can see now, can't you, how this will lead right into what we'll deal, deal with in the next section, which is the discipline of the church. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother, etc., etc. Why do you? Why does this go on between God's people? Precisely because of what we're learning here. Because we love each other, which puts church discipline in its proper context, doesn't it? It's not some sort of retribution or punishment. It's love in action. It's caring about fellow sheep. So the kingdom belongs to these little ones. The king so identifies himself with these little ones that when you help them, you help him. When you harm them, you attack him. And as a result, we're to care for these little ones in a way that reflects our father's care and our shepherd's care. I'll close tonight by just reminding us of how blessed we are. Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to look there with me and we'll read this together. Isaiah chapter 40 and look at verse 1. I'll read this from the English Standard Version. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Dear church, that is your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your care for us that staggers the imagination. We don't see it, but we know it to be true that even this moment, the angels stand at attention ready, Holy Father, to carry out Your commands with respect to the care of Your children who are to inherit salvation. And we do see our shepherds care for us in all the circumstances and situations of our lives. Lord, how often we have wandered, how often we have strayed, how often we have stumbled, and yet You never let us go. How kind You are how patient you are with us, how you persevere with us, your your stupid sheep, never letting us go, and even making use of us in each other's lives as clay jar instruments by which your love for us is known and experienced because, because you don't let us go. You send your servants our way to reach out to us when we're struggling. That is an expression of your love for us, which helps us to understand the discipline process that we'll look at next week. Lord, this is your love for your church. And so in the verses that we've looked at today, would you drive home in our hearts the truth that your people are precious to you, we are precious to you, and therefore our attitude toward each other must reflect your attitude toward your people, wherever we've been a stumbling block, wherever we have been dismissive, wherever, Lord, our attitude has not matched yours, please forgive us. Grant us the eyes that we have in Jesus Christ to see each other in a way that's fitting. And in that way, may your love for us be expressed through us so that your church is loved, built up, by virtue of what you do in and through your church, building up itself in love so that we take on more and more the likeness of our shepherd, our king, our savior, the Lord Jesus. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.